are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. If you want to stand with me, we're going to read scripture. If you want to turn in the Black Pew Bibles to 1091, I'm going to start at Acts chapter 10. If you've got the sermon guide, that's page 58. And we'll start in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 33. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. As he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house, to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. 
When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Joey. Great to be with you here this morning. Uh, welcome, especially to all of you who are visiting family for Thanksgiving and you're hanging out with us this morning. And to the kids that are with us today, guys, I want to make sure I can... Thank you for waving. I want to make sure that I can hear you while I'm preaching. So if you're more comfortable wiggling and making noise than sitting quietly, that's totally fine with me. Tell your parents that the guy on stage said it was okay, all right? We'll see how this goes. Uh, for those of you that are, that are just with us for you know this week, it might be helpful if we kind of recap where we've been. Uh, as a church, we've been working our way through the New Testament book of Acts. Uh, what we've kept referring to over and over again as Luke, he's the author, Luke's theological history of the Jesus movement, what we call the, the early church. And a lot has happened in the nine chapters that we've already studied. Most recently, we're just past the point where Saul, who's better known as, as Paul, where he has come to faith in Jesus, and then he's off the, the scene for about 10 years while Luke's attention shifts back off of Paul to Peter. It was on Peter from the start, and now it's shifting back onto Peter. And last week, as a church we studied, we watched as Peter was making his way further and further away from Jerusalem, moving, uh, moving north on a pastoral care tour. He was visiting some of the churches that had sprung up that are in the regions of Judea and Samaria and ministering to whoever needed it. That's what brought him to the bedside of Aeneas, a lame man in Lydda, and to Tabitha's upper room, a woman living in Joppa. Well, she's not living anymore. She died. But Peter, we've, we watched as there was a miraculous healing, a miraculous resurrection. And after that, Peter ends up in a tanner's house by the seaside outside Joppa. Now, he doesn't know it yet, but of course, we've, we've read ahead, and you just heard the, that whole passage read. Good on you, by the way, for standing for the, that entire long passage. I don't know if we have even any time left to preach, but we left Peter last week at Simon Tanner's house, and he doesn't know it, but he's waiting for a divine appointment, one that's going to drop him right in the middle of a huge controversy that will embroil him for chapters to come, and that will change the direction of the church forever. So let's jump in. But before we do, I want to see a show of hands. How many of you enjoyed the conversation around the table last Thursday with family and friends at Thanksgiving? 
Okay, for a second there, I thought no one was going to raise their hands. Uh, that's great. How many of you intentionally stayed away from controversial topics? So there were no debates about Lions versus Packers. Nobody came to blows over it. No big Israel-Palestine arguments. No Democrat-Republican. None of that. Surprisingly not, thank you. Well, congratulations. I think we all did pretty well. Um, though I know, so if you're like, you're like me, we were, we were with friends this year, and so not with um, family in which we would normally have to steer clear of certain topics. Uh, but I know some of you, even though I joke about it, I know some of you went into this past Thanksgiving um, expressly kind of planning on, hoping to use the family gathering as an opportunity to extend an olive branch, you know, do a little repair work from last year's Thanksgiving, right? Uh, to kind of try to extend a little bit of grace and repair a relationship maybe and, and, and go to people and say, not necessarily just bring it right out and say like, I know we disagree or anything, but like to have a good conversation around maybe even some of those difficult things. And you made your best effort and the other person didn't respond a bit. I've already heard stories. And, and <laughs> I know when you do that, that, right, that hurts because, well, all of us have this kind of natural expectation that when you, when you go to someone, when you make a move, when you reach out to someone, when you extend grace or you, you move towards someone else, there's a natural expectation that the other person is going to at least reciprocate in kind, you know, move a little bit back towards you. Respond somehow that your gracious invitation is also going to kind of call out a gracious response from the other person. It's, it's, that's the way relationships work. And so it's natural for us to expect that. When they don't respond kind of in kind, that, you know, that, that hurts. It's like whenever I move towards you, there's a built-in expectation that you, you at least move a little bit back towards me, right? Well, that same dynamic is at work in the story that we just heard read, except it's not a dynamic between Cornelius and Peter, so much as it is between God and Cornelius and God and Peter. We're not going to get through the whole story of Cornelius and all of its ramifications this morning. 33 verses only covered like three of the seven scenes in the whole story of Cornelius. We're just going to look at the first three scenes. You can call it Act 1, Act 1, Scene 1, Scene 2, Scene 3. So even though we're only going to get uh, 42.86% of the way through the Cornelius story this morning. I did the math earlier, just out of curiosity. Uh, even though we're only going to get three-sevenths of the way through the story this morning, it's still enough for us to begin to see clearly that God never moves. God never moves without calling the people he's moving to to move to. Or to put it in a slightly less tongue-twisty way, God never moves without calling you to move, too. God never moves without calling us to also move. 
And we're going to see that come through in Acts chapter 10. So let's jump in. See, Luke starts the story with a a scene change. If you left off at the end of verse 9, we've got Peter in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house. And then chapter 10, verse 1, Luke shifts us 25 miles away to Caesarea. It's It's a move that should take us a little bit by surprise. Look at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. And just in that introduction, there's a lot packed into that one verse, a lot that can tend to kind of go over our heads a little bit if we're not first century Jews, which I don't think any of us here are. So a little bit of an explanation. First, the town he's talking about is Caesarea, about 30 years before this the Roman capital of Judea, of that province, had been in Jerusalem, but it was moved north to Caesarea, which you can tell by the name, was named after Caesar. It's where presumably Pontius Pilate was stationed most of the time, along with a garrison of Roman soldiers. Uh, When history types refer to this Caesarea, because there was more than one, they usually refer to this one as Caesarea Maritima or Maritima, Uh, which means it's the Caesarea by the sea where there's maritime traffic. Um, If it helps, you can remember it as Seaside Saria or something like that, Seaside Aria. It's it's the one by the ocean. And, you know, those facts and the hundred others that I didn't include here sound to us like interesting archaeology, but to Jews of the first century, it sounds more like the capital city of the enemy. This is Mordor, and Jews don't just walk in. Right, it's, it's ground zero for the Roman occupation of Israel. Caesarea is, is not on anyone's vacation destination bucket list. Okay? So the scene shifts to Caesarea, and Luke introduces us to Cornelius, centurion, guy with a Greek name who comes from Italy. He's a soldier with a lot of authority, a lot of power, probably a Roman citizen. If not now, then he'll, he'll become one when he retires. But this guy is about as far from being Jewish as you can get. And yet Luke describes him in ways that sound exactly that, that he's Jewish. Look at verse 2. He's described as a devout man who feared God with all of his household, led his household to do the same. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Luke paints a a picture of Cornelius that shows him performing most of the typical duties of a pious Jew. So he's a Roman soldier, as far away from being Jewish as possible, and he's being described as acting pretty much as Jewish as possible, praying, giving, fearing, worshiping God leading his household to do the same. He's sort of a best of both worlds, maybe a bridge between these worlds type of character. Well, as we continue reading in the story, we find out that you know, something's going to happen. Of course, you know something's going to happen, or the story wouldn't be told here. One afternoon, at the normal time that Jewish men are praying, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius sees clearly, there's no mistaking it, sees in a vision an angel of God come to him and tell him, your prayers, your gifts, your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And this idea of a, of a memorial offering 
It's actually pretty widespread in Jewish life at the time. If you couldn't make it to Jerusalem you know, on the regular basis to offer the animal sacrifices that were prescribed in the law, uh, you know, you're part of a synagogue community too far away, whatever, it was generally understood that your prayers and your giving, your charity, would sort of substitute for a sacrifice. Uh, Jews saw it as a fulfillment of, I think it's back in 2 Samuel 2 or chapter 3, where God says, hey, whoever honors me, I will honor. So an angel comes to Cornelius, tells him, hey, God has heard you. He's seen how you're honoring him, and then gives him instructions. Hey, I want you to send messengers to Joppa. It's about 25 miles away, two days journey or so. Have them find... I know you've never heard of him or met him, but find this guy named Simon, uh, Simon Peter, Shimon Petrus. Go find Shimon Petrus. He's staying with uh, Shimon Berseus, uh, Simon the Tanner. Uh, you'll be able to find his house pretty easily. It's by the seaside, and he's a tanner, so it smells bad. Just follow your nose. Cornelius doesn't know who Simon Peter is. He doesn't know why he's supposed to send messengers to go find Peter, but he obeys Immediately, he, he responds. When God moves, he moves as well. Because God never moves without calling us to move, too. Well, that takes us to the end of Act 1, Scene 1, and Luke shifts into Scene 2, uh, shifting the story over to Peter in verse 9, the next day. So the two servants, the soldier that Cornelius sends with the message, they're on their way to Joppa, you know, that two-day journey. And so it's the next day while they're there, while the messengers are approaching the city, Peter is headed up onto the rooftop to, to pray. Back then, roofs were usually flat. You'd put a shaded area up there. It's like a porch or a patio or, or a deck or something like that, just up on the roof, which sounds way more fun to me than on the ground, right? Imagine how much mischief you could get into. Or you could go up there to pray. And while the messengers are approaching the city, Peter's up there praying. It's noon. That's not one of the prescribed times for prayer, but Peter's on the rooftop anyway. He's praying. He's getting hungry, which seems to set up the perfect circumstances for a revelatory vision involving food. So he falls into a, a, a trance. Um, it's one of those like sort of dreamlike states. Uh, you know when you're half awake, half asleep, and you're kind of vaguely aware of what's going on, but like also your dreams are intruding? It's not a dream that Peter's having, though, because the word that's used here is always used of a dreamlike state, but one where God is, is revealing something directly to the person. So Peter's experiencing direct revelation from God, and Luke doesn't describe exactly what Peter sees. He just says it's kind of like a big sheet coming down from heaven to earth, and the sheet is filled with, with just all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And as Peter's seeing this vision, the sheet coming down with all these animals on it, he hears a voice telling him to, hey, get up. Uh, pick an animal, any animal, uh, slaughter it, and make yourself some, some lunch. And then, somewhat ironically, Peter uh, contradicts God uh, and says in the strongest and yet most respectful way possible, 
as if the words no and Lord ever go together. He uses both of them. He's like, there is no way I'm going to eat any of this animals that you're, you're showing me. Not even the clean animals on the sheet are game. Peter calls them common uh, or tainted because they've been made unclean by being in close contact with the unclean animals. Now, never mind that Peter's staying at a tanner's house. (laughs) Tanning is that job where you take animal hides and you turn them into leather. It was an unclean profession and smelled horrible. Never mind that he's there. You may not remember uh, that Jews had pretty strict laws about what they could and couldn't eat. You couldn't eat pigs or rats uh, or shellfish, uh, no dogs or horse meat and no snakes or slugs or rabbits or cats. Uh, All of those were off the table. Uh, But a lot of other things were allowed, which presumably were all also on this sheet. You know, there's clean and unclean animals together. And I I know the whole clean and unclean thing doesn't really resonate with us so much. We don't tend to think in categories of clean and unclean, at least not morally, but a close parallel is kind of like, you know, some of us in our houses, we, we take our shoes off when you enter the house, right? Anybody have a house like that? Okay, now I know. I'm just making notes, mental notes. Um, we have a sign uh, in our foyer that says, please remove your shoes and don't take a better pair when you leave. Now, a lot of, when, when guests come over, we say, hey, uh, you know, please take your shoes off, right? And if they don't, I mean, that's fine. It just means that their unclean shoes have defiled the house. And so you have to vacuum or mop after they leave, right? You know what I'm getting at. See, the the whole animals, unclean food, clean food, is sort of the moral equivalent of, we think in these categories in some places, just not in in this area or, or in these ways. But all of these different animals are on the sheet, all mixed together. But Peter, interestingly, he refuses to eat any of them. Not even the clean ones, because they're, they're tainted, they're defiled by, you know, they're contaminated by the unclean animals. Uh, well, he says, no, Lord, and the voice responds and tells him, hey, what God has made clean, don't you go calling common or tainted. See, it's a bit surprising, because in the Old Testament, God's the one who calls half the animals unclean and the other half clean. And now he tells Peter, don't call any of them tainted. Not to say, he can't say anymore that the clean animals are infected by the unclean ones. But interestingly, the voice also says in verse 15, says that God has made the animals clean. He's not saying, hey, I changed the rules and now these ones are fine. He's not saying he declared them clean or is calling them clean. He says he made them clean. Something God has done has wiped away the distinction between unclean animals and clean animals. You could say it has, something God has done has reconciled unclean animals to himself. Now, Peter says that This happened three times, this whole exchange back and forth between him and God. Peter has kind of this thing for for disagreeing with God three times before he finally gets it. 
happens again. And then the whole sheet and everything is pulled back up to heaven. The vision ends. And I don't think Peter ever did eat anything. Um, Still didn't have any lunch. But obviously, this is about more than just what foods Jewish people can eat now and what foods they can't. It only takes a few moments before Peter starts to understand what God is saying. He has done something in the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. He's done something that breaks down the old barriers between Jew, you know, clean, and, and Gentile, unclean. He's suddenly got to see the world with sort of a different lens, a different filter now, because Gentiles aren't, they're, they're not infectious anymore. They don't automatically make the Jews around them unclean. But what is that going to mean for the church, the movement that Peter is leading? Well, that's where Cornelius comes back into the story. As we move from Act 1, Scene 2 to Act 1, Scene 3 in verse 17, we're now suddenly outside the gate of Simon the Tanner's house. Peter's still, he's, he's up on the rooftop, is, is pondering what the vision means. Like, well, that was odd. I don't know what that all is about. And meanwhile, Cornelius' messengers are, are standing at the gate of the house. They're, they're ringing the doorbell, and they're saying, hey, this must be Simon the Tanner's house, because this is where we were told to go, and the smell is a, is a pretty big clue. Is there another Simon here, Simon Peter? And, and Peter doesn't know any of this is happening. He's staying on the rooftop. Still thinking about the vision when he receives one, he hears one more voice. The Spirit of God says directly to him, hey, there are three men who are looking for you. Get up, go down, go with them, don't hesitate. Spirit of God says, I sent them. I am sending them to you. Peter obeys. He gets up. He goes down. He goes out to the gate. He sees three Gentiles, right? And the little warning light is going off in his head. It's like, unclean. And, but Peter introduces himself. Hey, why are you here? What's up? What's going on? And, and they tell him. He hears that Cornelius, the Roman soldier who lives a devout Jewish life, uh, that, that Cornelius saw a vision, clearly saw an angel telling him to send for Peter and bring Peter Back to his house. Well, Peter in, invites them in uh, for the night. Uh, I guess too late to get going that day. Peter and, and I guess also Simon the Tanner's house is big enough that your guests can invite other guests uh, to hang out there as well, which never flies at our place. But uh, Peter invites them in for the night, presumably hears more of what they have to say, and then he and a, a few of the other believers who live in Joppa, uh, devout Jewish believers, like almost scrupulous, almost Pharisaic believers, we'll find out later, they begin the two-day trek back to seaside Syria. Now, it's it's not just a a physical journey that Luke's taking us on here. It's not just about Peter going to Caesarea. There's a a lot of symbolic meaning wrapped up in this movement. We've got a a devout, the the devout Jewish leader of, of what he considers to be a minority messianic Jewish movement 
being invited into Gentile territory to come explain it to somebody who's not part of Judaism. But it's not just that he, you know, Peter is going here on his, his own accord or his own like, oh, here's a good idea. Let's go talk to these people. He is being invited into it. God's prompting, God's invitation is getting him into Caesarea. Cornelius, in the meantime, you know, uh, meanwhile, is expected the messengers are going to come back and that they'll bring Peter. After all, that's what he was told to go do. And so he invites all of his friends and his relatives together so that they're all there when Peter arrives. Suddenly, the story is about more than just one guy. It's about through him. This is opening up to a whole room full of unclean people. And then Peter does show up, and, and when he does, uh, this is in uh, verse, where is it, verse 25, when Peter does show up, Cornelius meets him uh, and immediately falls down at his feet, and the ESV translates it, worshipped him. And now, it's either the, the kind of standard Middle Eastern way of paying homage to somebody by you know, going down on your knees in front of their feet, or Cornelius is like actually worshipping him, which is plausible over and over we see in the book of Acts, people who aren't part of Jewish culture often mistake the, the one who you know, can do miracles or the one through whom miracles are done as like, it's off, that person's often mistaken as the one with the power, you know, the one who doles out the power, uh, mistaken with God. It's, it's like mistaking you know, your TV on the wall for a window. Right, and, and thinking that you're seeing through it to the actual thing instead of a, a, a picture of the thing. Uh, that this kind of mistake happens over and over again. But Peter tells Cornelius, hey, get back up. Either he's saying, look, I'm nobody special. I don't deserve this. Or, dude, I'm not a god. Like, don't do this. Uh, not okay. And they begin talking. They move deeper into the house. And the way it's written, Peter is surprised to find a large group gathered for what looks like a church service. And he's the featured speaker, and he has no idea about it. And this is the point in the story where it's so funny that, that Peter stops and basically explains to everyone. I mean, he's so far already past what's normal for a Jewish guy to do, but he stops anyway and explains. He's like, hey, y'all know how it's pretty taboo for me to be here? It's unlawful, kind of in the soft sense of like, if my friends found out I was doing this, uh, they wouldn't be happy with me. It's like, it, it's, it's taboo for a Jew like me to be associated with any of you lot still. God has shown me that I'm not supposed to call any person common or tainted or unclean. So, what's up? <laughs> Why am I here? And Cornelius then tells Peter about his own vision and the angel's command to go get Peter and bring him back to Caesarea and, and hear what he has to say. Every time, by the way, that, that these visions only happened once, but they're told over and over and over again, usually each time with a little bit more detail. It's kind of the author's way of, of pounding into us like, hey, this is important. <laughs> this is really pivotal. And it's you know, a little bit of suspense. You're always going to find out something more each time it's told. But Cornelius says, look, I saw this vision. Also, I don't know who you are, but I was sent to get you. So obviously God has something to say to us through you. So we're here before God. You're up. 
And Cornelius and his friends and his family, they sit back and they wait for Peter to, to preach. And it's Peter's chance to decide if when God moves, he's going to move too. Now, what happens next? Well, you have to come back next year to find out how the story ends. Because uh, next week is the beginning of Advent. We're going to shift gears out of Acts for the four weeks of Advent and kind of do a theological deep dive into Christmas. Like, why Christmas? Uh, why did salvation ha- for us have to come from, you know, outside? Why an incarnation? Why a virgin birth? Why celebrate it? Why do we even celebrate Christmas? It's not a Hallmark holiday, uh, so there's got to be some good reason for it, right? Now, in the meantime... Uh, from this story and just the three-sevenths of it that we've covered today, there, there are, there's plenty of things that we can learn about how we're supposed to be you know, and do church in our world today. But just two things that I want to emphasize. And the first is that look, we need to notice that the whole story only happens because of divine intervention or divine invitation. The story only happens because of divine invitation. It wasn't Peter's idea to go into Gentile territory and bring the message of the kingdom of God. He was drawn there. He was called there directly by God. God prepared him to receive a call from Cornelius, and God prompted Cornelius to put out that call. See, God is always calling and drawing people to him. Now, he doesn't always use visions. Cornelius is not by any means a typical conversion story, if you want to call it that. He doesn't always use visions. So, I mean, we hear about them uh, sometimes in some cultural contexts, but it, it seems most often where churches have been established, God uses his word and his people to call others to him, which means he might be calling you. I mean, like today, like right now, God may be calling you. It's probably not an accident that you're here this morning. In fact, I know it's not an accident that you're here this morning. Um, Maybe you had a vision, maybe a sense impression, maybe just felt like you needed to be here for some reason or another. Maybe, Maybe God was speaking through a friend, someone who loves you, and said, hey, why don't you come along with us? This morning, if that's you, I know you may feel like you're on the the outside, the outside of a family of, of you know even knowing what's going on here, um, feeling like you're not maybe the right kind of person uh, that God would want to interact or would want to call to Him. But nobody thought Cornelius was either. In fact, he was almost exactly the wrong kind of person, and yet God was calling him anyway. I mean, God keeps showing us over and over again in the stories in Acts that you don't become the right person and then get called. You get called and then respond to the calling. We, we all respond to God's grace. So God is continuing to call people. He may be calling you, but I know for sure that he's calling some people through us. That's the second thing I want to emphasize. I mean, the first is that God is still calling people, and the second is that God is still calling people through us. That's kind of why we're a church, because God calls the people around us 
through us. I mean, if as a church we ever forget that God is constantly calling the people around us through us, we'll have lost one of the main reasons for why we exist as a church. Yes, we exist in order to direct the worship of God's people up to God, but we also exist to direct the calling of God down to his people and the people he's calling to him. See, God could have reached Cornelius without Peter's help. If God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without your help or mine, as the famous saying goes. And yet, he seems to never move without calling other people to move with him. Or to put it another way, God never moves without calling us to move too. See, there was a moment where Peter had to decide, am I going to move? Am I going to move or is taboo going to win? Is, is unclean going to win? And, and I know we, f- we face the same question over and over again. Maybe it's around that Thanksgiving table when it's the, the weird uncle with the conspiracy theories right? Or parents, your college kid that just came home and suddenly knows how the whole world works after one semester away. Or college students, it might be your parents who are hopelessly out of date. Who's, Who's your taboo? The person that you just, oh man, God, call me to anybody but him or her. God was calling to Cornelius through Peter. What if, what if Peter hadn't responded? God's calling to the people around us through us. And so we have to decide if we're going to respond. Because God never moves without calling us to move too. So, of course, the question we leave ourselves with is, well, how is God calling me to move How is God calling me to move? It may be that he's moving towards me for the first time. It's like this is starting to make sense and I don't know how to respond, in which case the calling is to move towards God. If he's moving towards me, I need to move towards him. On the other hand, God may be moving through me to someone else and it's on me then to decide to move with him towards the people he wants to reach through me. Because, you know, God never moves without calling the people he's moving to to move to. Including us. So are we going to move? Well, let's pray. Father, in the next weeks, we pause in the normal rhythm of the year simply to recognize and celebrate uh, your coming to us in Jesus and your coming to us again in Jesus someday in the future, once as our Savior and then as our King. Uh, Pausing this way reminds us that, that you are always moving toward us long before we ever respond to you. So we, we pray uh, for each of us that if we're, if we're feeling... Uh, 
that we need to respond to you for the first time, that we would respond and move towards you. If we're feeling that you are moving through us to someone else, that, that your grace to us would call grace out of us towards others, that, that your faithfulness to us would call faithfulness out of us and again to others. Father, that your love for us would call love out of us to those that you love. May we not be stopped by taboo or defilement or whatever it is that keeps us from seeing the people you're calling us to. But Father, as you have moved towards us, may we move to those around us with the same gift you've given us, salvation in your Son. And we pray this in his name.